Good morning, church family. This makes me want to be in Yosemite or some other national park, except Joshua Tree. That'd be miserable today. You know, one of my closest friends is an accomplished theologian. He's written more than a dozen theology books, and he likes to say, show me how you live, and that will tell me what you really believe. His point is that our actions say far more about our theology than our words. Am I the only one who hears music in the background? Or something humming in the background? Sometimes our actions suggest that we don't really believe certain things as much as our words say we do. Nearly all Christians say that they believe in Christ's second coming. We confess the Apostles' Creed together whenever we have a baptism or receive new members, and we say we believe that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. We, we confess this. Uh, the second coming of Jesus is a core Christian belief. Every Christian group says that they believe in Christ's second coming. But in my head, I can hear my theologian friend asking, does how we live reflect that we hold to that belief? How should this belief impact our lives? Now, for a lot of Christians, believing in Christ's return means scouring Bible prophecy and scouring the headlines to speculate about the end times. Some Christians focus their lives on this. According to Publishers Weekly, books about Bible prophecy sell more copies and make more money than any other category of books in religious publishing today. And last year, 2022, was a banner year for these kinds of books. In fact, I was on vacation in Texas last week where it was miserably hot, and I, I went to a Christian bookstore, remember those? And they had a whole section devoted to end times Bible prophecy. And this speculation about end times Bible prophecy has been especially prevalent here in the United States over the last 150 years. This goes back to the creation of an approach to Bible study and to theology about 150 years ago that's called dispensationalism. And a lot of Christians have never heard of dispensationalism, so let me give you a brief overview. Dispensational theology originated in the late 1800s from a pastor from Ireland named John Nelson Darby. Darby was a pastor in the Plymouth Brethren Church. And Darby divided the Bible into seven different eras, what he called dispensations. That's why they call it dispensationalism. And Darby said that in each of these seven dispensations, God relates to the human race in a unique way. Each dispensation that's happened so far ended with the human race 
failing to keep up their side of that dispensation's unique relationship with God. And so after each human failure, God starts a new dispensation that includes a new way to relate to God that's unique to that new dispensation. And according to Darby, we're currently living in the sixth of these seven dispensations, what he called the dispensation of grace, or later dispensationalists called the church age. Darby said that this sixth dispensation would eventually lead to a rapture event where Jesus would rescue his church out of the world right before God pours out his judgment on the earth. And according to Darby, seven years after that rapture event, Jesus would return again. This sixth dispensation would be followed by the final seventh dispensation, where God would fulfill all of his Old Testament prophecies to the nation of Israel while Jesus rules over the world for a thousand years, which is then followed by the new heavens and new earth. Now, Darby's ideas never really took off in Ireland. So he came to the United States hoping to spread his ideas, and eventually he persuaded the famous 19th century evangelist Dwight Moody of his ideas. And through Moody, Darby's ideas began to spread throughout the United States. Schools like Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Dallas Seminary in Texas, and Biola University, my alma mater in Los Angeles, were all founded in the late 1800s or early 1900s on Darby's theology. Study Bibles like the Schofield Reference Bible and the Ryrie Study Bible and the Thompson Chain Reference Bible all were based on Darby's ideas. But dispensationalism really began to explode in 1970 when an author named Hal Lindsey wrote a best-selling book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Lindsay's book eventually sold over 40 million copies and was translated into more than 50 different languages. And going back to to Darby himself, a consistent feature of dispensational theology has been speculation about how current events line up with the end times. In that Christian bookstore I visited in Texas, I was killing time before my flight, and I had a lot of time to kill. So I looked at every book in that section, and every book was based and written from a dispensational perspective. A Reformed theologian named James Smith from Calvin College says that dispensational theology tends to view the Christian life primarily as a countdown clock, ticking down to the end. You might picture a winning football team on a field in the final minutes of a football game. Dispensational theology tends to see the primary role of the church as managing the clock until the time runs out. And this mindset has led some dispensationalists to be more prone to speculate about end times than other theological traditions. In 1970, when Hal Lindsey wrote The Late Great Planet Earth, he went on record as saying that Jesus would definitely return by 1981 or 1982. Now, 1982 is the year I became Christian. And so I was deeply influenced by these ideas. I went to a dispensationalist church. I have my Ryrie study Bible that I used. 
I studied theology at Biola University, a dispensational college. I eventually went to Talbot School of Theology, a dispensationalist seminary. I had books and charts and timelines and graphs that all demonstrated how events from the 1980s perfectly lined up, at least it seemed, with dispensational interpretations of the Bible. In fact, in 1984, I was convinced that Jesus was going to return during the Olympics in Los Angeles. I thought, we may not know the day or the hour, but I could know the month. And of course, I was wrong. And the more I studied the Bible, the less dispensational I became. And even though I was studying at Biola and then at Talbot, I became more and more reformed in my theology, much to the distress of some of my professors. Now, I'm grateful for how dispensational theology gave me a love for studying the Bible and a yearning for the return of Christ. And I deeply respect my early mentors and my college and seminary professors but I've come to believe that the details about Christ's return are really anyone's guess. After all, every previous century that speculated about the return of Christ was wrong. And I've come to see that the Christian life is far more than a countdown clock ticking down to the end. So that brings us to the original question. How should our belief that he will come again to judge the living and the dead impact our lives today. If we're not supposed to just sit back and wait for the clock to count down, what should we be doing? We're currently in our summer series through 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 4 today, we're going to see four essential ways that believing in Christ's return should be impacting our daily lives. And if our belief in the return of Christ is not impacting our lives in these four ways, it's legitimate to ask whether we really believe it as much as we say we do. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit." The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And be seated. This passage is about helping us live today with the second coming of Christ in mind. We see this in verse 5. Paul uses an or Peter uses an accounting term in verse 5 that pictures everything a person does as recorded in a ledger, like an accounting ledger. When Jesus returns, there'll be a big audit. And every person's ledger will be opened and their lives will be audited. Jesus will return in the words of the Apostles' Creed and in the words of 1 Peter to judge the living and the dead. And in verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is near. The end of all things refers to the completion of history, the consummation of God's plan. And the word near here, it simply means next. Christ's resurrection from the dead marked the beginning of the final chapter of God's story of redemption. Peter's not commenting on how long this chapter will last, only that this is the chapter that we're in now. The point of verse 7 is to remind us where we are in the story of God. You might think of verse 5 as the micro view, and verse 7 as the macro view of the second coming. Verse 5 is about how Christ's return will affect every individual person. Every person will have their ledger opened, and their life will be audited. But verse 7 is about how Christ's return will impact all of creation, all things. See, Christ's return is not merely to save some people while the earth plunges into darkness and an apocalypse and chaos. When Christ returns, he will redeem and restore all of creation. Yes, evil will be judged. Yes, injustice will be answered. And yes, those who refuse and spurn God's grace will be expelled. It will be a judgment after all. But it is a judgment to redeem and restore all of creation. But do we really believe that this is true? If we really believe it, we will pursue what God wants above everything else. In the words of verse 2, we will live the rest of our earthly lives for the will of God. We will pursue what God wants above everything. These verses, specifically verse 3, indicate that these Christians Peter was writing to had led some pretty wild lives. Um, some Bible scholars have pointed out that verse 3 and the words that are used describe a typical Roman dinner party where people would gather at someone's home or a temple in the name of one of the many gods of partying, and there were a lot, and they would gorge themselves with food and drink way too much alcohol and then make a lot of bad decisions that they'd barely remember the next day as they did the walk of shame back home. And when we read verse 3, 
We think of what might happen at a rave or at a dive bar at 2 a.m. when it closes or an exclusive private club. But verse 3 in Roman society was just another Friday night for most people. And this is how Peter's readers used to live before they met Jesus. But now they're living differently. They're resisting this former way of life. When Peter says in verse 1 that they're done with sin, he doesn't mean that they're sinless. He's saying that they've closed that chapter of their lives and they've started a new life with Christ that is resisting sin, even if it means suffering in the body, just as Jesus suffered. But now they have a new problem. Their former Friday night party friends have turned against them. And their friends are now opposing them and mocking them, attacking them for no longer doing the things that they used to do. They've become exiles, scattered in Babylon. And this is where our belief in Christ's return can help us. We can be confident that when Jesus comes again, everyone will be held accountable to him. If we really believe in the return of Jesus, we can let it go when people slander, attack, or misunderstand us. You see, it's very tempting for us as Christians to speculate on how we think other people's audit is going to go when Jesus comes again. To, to put ourselves in Jesus' place and to proclaim what we think is in their ledger. Some Christians even connect certain tragedies that happen with the sins of particular groups of people, as if they somehow got a sneak peek into other people's ledgers. Peter's readers were probably tempted to pronounce God's judgment over their former Friday night partying friends. But Peter says we don't need to do that. In fact, we shouldn't do it. Because if we really believe that Christ will return, we can leave the judging to Jesus. And instead, we can focus all of that energy, as verse 2 urges us, to live the rest of our lives for the will of God. To live for what God wants for our lives above all else. Even if we're misunderstood, even if we're mocked, even if we're rejected or attacked, to live for the will of God. And I don't know about you, but living for the will of God in my life is a full-time job. Life is far more than watching a clock tick down to zero. It's an act of life of discovering and pursuing God's unique assignment for my life and then seeking to live out what God wants. If we really believe in the return of Jesus, we'll leave the judging to him and live for what God wants. Here's a second way our belief in Christ's return should impact our lives. We will cultivate a life of prayer. We'll cultivate a life of prayer. In contrast to the drunken intoxication of verse 3, verse 7 urges us to a life of prayer. See, knowing that Jesus will return brings clarity 
to what's really important in this life. Believing in Christ's return helps us live in the present with that future end in mind. Christ's return shouldn't cause us to live in fear or anxiety. We we serve a gracious, loving, merciful Savior. But it should create an awareness that our decisions have significance. And instead of viewing life as a time clock that's running down, we can view life as a school where we learn what it means to be people of prayer, to learn to continually commune with God on a moment-by-moment basis, seeking his discernment, his direction, his blessing, his guidance. I've been following Jesus for more than 40 years now, and I still feel like a beginner when it comes to prayer. If we really believe in the return of Jesus, we will see life on this earth as an opportunity to cultivate a life of prayer. Third, if we really believe in Christ's return, we will remain in loving Christian community. We will remain in loving Christian community. Verse 8 commands us to love each other deeply. The word deeply, it means eagerly, even when we feel like giving up. Deep love is persistent love. When people in our community say things or do things that hurt us, even if it's unintentional, our urge is to run, to distance ourselves. And a lot of our sins against each other in in churches and in community, they're like paper cuts. Paper cuts are not devastating, but they certainly do sting. And this is why Peter quotes a verse from the book of Proverbs here to remind us that real love, deep love, covers a multitude of sins. Real love overlooks the paper cuts we make in each other's lives. And a lot of sins are like paper cuts. But notice that it doesn't say all sins. There are certain sins that must be addressed, confronted, corrected. There are certain sins that it would be unloving not to confront. But a real persistent love lets the paper cuts go. In verse 9, we see that this deep love will lead us to open our lives to each other in hospitality without complaining or grumbling about it, to, to willingly open ourselves. That if we really believe in the return of Jesus, we will remain in loving Christian community with each other, loving each other deeply showing hospitality. One of my friends from high school has gone so deep down the rabbit hole of end time speculation that she's completely isolated herself from everyone around her. She's caught up in so many conspiracy theories that she's convinced that every new headline is a sign that the second coming is going to happen tomorrow. And her views have gotten so extreme that she can no longer find a church that aligns with her views about the end times. So she's isolated herself from her Christian friends, from from her family, from the church she used to go to, and she just sits in front of her computer screen watching internet pastors If we really believe in Christ's return, we will remain 
in loving Christian community, even when it's hard, even when it's risky, even when we commit little paper cuts on each other. Finally, lastly, if we really believe in the return of Jesus, we will serve other people with the gifts God gives us. We will serve other people. Verses 10 and 11, Peter says that every follower of Jesus has received some kind of gift from God. And Peter divides these spiritual gifts into two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts are gifts like teaching, pastoring, encouraging, counseling, leadership, evangelism. My my primary gifts are speaking gifts, especially teaching and pastoring. Serving gifts are gifts like mercy, giving, administration, hospitality, making things, and so on. Every Christian has been given at least one gift from God. And Peter tells us that these gifts represent God's grace in all of its various forms. You might picture God's grace as if it's light shining into a prism. These gifts are like the different colors that are refracted from a prison when light shines into it. God's grace shines into Glenkirk, and then that grace refracts into different spiritual gifts. And when each person uses their gift, we see all the colors from the light, and we all experience God's grace in its various forms. But if some people don't use their gift... We miss out on some of the colors, and we miss out on some of the forms of God's grace. This is one reason I love VBS Week at Glenkirk, because I get to see so many of you use your gift from God. Peter says each of us has received a gift of grace, but it's up to us to make sure that we use it to serve other people. Some people don't use their gift. They get distracted and never get around to it. Or or someone tells them they can't use their gift because they're too young or too old or they're a woman or they're not married or whatever it might be. Some people don't use their gift. Some people misuse their gift. They use their gift to promote themselves or or manipulate people to, to get something rather than to give something. Peter wants us to know that God gives us these gifts and expects us to steward them to serve other people. And when we use our gifts to serve, people experience the grace of God in all of its various forms. People with speaking gifts serve when they speak in accordance with God's word. When a, when a teacher or a pastor or a church leader or a Bible study leader speaks words that are consistent with what the Bible teaches, they speak the very words of God. And people with serving gifts serve other people when they serve with the strength that God provides, not manipulatively or out of duty or begrudgingly or out of guilt. If we really believe that Jesus is coming again, we will use our gifts to serve. All Christians say that they believe Jesus will come again. But as my theologian friend would ask, Do our actions really demonstrate this belief? If we really believe it, we will pursue God's will above all else. We'll develop a life of prayer, remain in loving Christian community, and use our gifts to serve. 
Because life is far more than a countdown clock. When the church has been at its best over the last 2,000 years, this is how Christians have lived with the end in mind. Not like an ostrich hiding its head in the sand, ignoring what's happening around us, but also not like Chicken Little. You remember the story of Chicken Little who kept saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, until everyone tuned him out. Until Christ returns, let's pursue what God wants. Cultivate a life of prayer. Learn to love each other deeply and serve each other with the gifts God has provided. Because maybe the game clock is running down to the final seconds on the field. But maybe, just maybe, this is just the end of the first half. And there's still a lot of game left to play. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the truth that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We rejoice that he will one day bring about the completion of all things. And Lord, help us as your people be faithful in that meantime. Whether that time is another day or another thousand years. Help us live with that end in mind, actively living for you above all else. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.